Father, we thank you so much for uh, this opportunity to open your word. And it is such a privilege because we know of many places, Lord, that, that when people open their Bibles, they have to do it in secret. And they can't gather in a nice sanctuary like this and, and uh, be vocal about it, but they have to hide and, and uh, be careful for their lives, Lord. And I thank you for the privilege, the awesome privilege that we have tonight of studying your word. And um, Lord, I pray that we would never take this for granted. Um, what a blessing it is. So as we open our Bibles, we do open our hearts, Lord, and we ask that by your spirit, you would just plant the seeds deep in our hearts that we might receive what you have for us tonight. And we ask this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to back up just a little bit and get a running start at this because Matthew chapter 5 through 7, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, and we start with uh, the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. But there's one thing that I want you to understand, and it'll help if you back up to chapter 4 and verse 18, okay? This is where we finished up last week, and it says, in Matthew 4, 18, it says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee... He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now I want you to get a picture of, of disciples, okay, disciples and discipleship. But note that Matthew, he, he doesn't do so much with the character sketches like Mark does and Luke does. He's not so interested in the character sketches here, but he's interested in Jesus' teaching, and that's what he wants to get around to. So he's telling you he's collecting these followers, he's collecting these disciples, and he says, follow me. Now watch what happens. Verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now the key is, these are Jesus' followers. He's drawing a crowd. They're following him. I want you to understand that what we're going to look at tonight is the first of five what we call discourses or, or teachings that Jesus does in Matthew's gospel. And the important thing to understand is that Matthew stresses the teachings of Jesus. His gospels now are going to go into the, to the teachings of Jesus. These five discourses in Matthew, they make up about three-fifths of his gospel. So he's really into the teaching of Jesus. They make up about three-fifths of the entire gospel. So Matthew's obviously wanting to stress the content of Jesus' teaching as related to his person, to who he is, and as related to the law. Now you'll understand why he did these miracles in the synagogues, why he was healing people publicly, and they began to follow him because he's going to teach them, and his teachings are very important. And I'll, I'll tell you why in just a second. But the idea is that all that the Messiah came to accomplish would be done. Jesus wants to teach them about all that the Messiah is going to accomplish. Just file that somewhere. Just file that in your heart. File that in the back of your head. Everything that the Messiah has to accomplish, that's what Jesus wants to point out. Now, you need to understand this too. Jesus' career was, was much, much more than a series of 
marvelous historical events. Okay, I mean you can look at the miracles and look at the things that Jesus did. It's just it's fantastic. On the other hand, what would you expect if God came down? What would you expect from him? Would you expect him to be able to have control over the elements? Sure you would. God put on flesh and came down. Would you expect him to be able to say to the wind and the rain, peace, be still, and it would obey him? Sure you would. Would you expect him to be able to look at a blind man and just with his word tell him to see? Sure you would. But his career was more than a series of marvelous historical events. It was the fulfillment of the divine purpose in the Messiah, in the promised Messiah. Now, Jesus' discourses are specifically for his disciples, and that's why a lot of people have problems with Matthew 5 through 7. If somebody, here's what I tell people. If, if you pick up the, the Bible, for example, and you're trying to read through the Bible and you just don't get it, maybe you're reading somebody else's mail. Think about it. So I tell my friends, because there's a, there's a lot of people, if you're not born again, you're not going to understand anything in here. And so the important thing is, if, is this your mail? If you're born again, this is yours, and you'll get it. Jesus is going to make things very clear here. But this is for his disciples. So if you, in other words, if you go in here and you try to do these things and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you wind up like the scribes and the Pharisees. It's just a do, do, don't, don't list. You know, it doesn't work. It really doesn't work. And that's what Jesus is trying to point out. Now I'm going to give you a, a definition, actually a few definitions, of a disciple, just so you know, because this, this stuff here is specifically for Jesus' disciples. Okay? First of all, a disciple is one who is willing to deny himself and surrender to another's will. Well, that's a tough thing. That's a tough thing. Some people say, hey, I'm not giving my mind, my will over to anybody. I had an uncle who was in the Second World War. He was a paratrooper in the Second World War, and he saw some of the mind control tactics of Adolf Hitler. And he saw some of the people, he was up against some of the people who were brainwashed like that and so he's very you know nervous about what somebody else's will for me but listen to what jesus said he said if anyone would come after me he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me matthew sixteen twenty four. okay here's another definition of a disciple a student of another's teaching um in john chapter 8 Verses 31 and 32, I'm just going to read it to you. It says, Jesus says to his disciples, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Wow. Everybody, you know, if I, if I ask for a show of hands of how many disciples we have, how many Jesus disciples do we have here, we'd all raise our hands. But Jesus says, if you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples. Hmm. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John eight thirty one and 32. Again, a disciple. A disciple is one who makes disciples. <laughs> Interesting, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, Jesus said to the disciples, he says, therefore, he was talking about having all power and authority, and he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, we like to cling to that scripture that says, Lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the age. But we forget what Jesus said right before that. He said, Go into all the world and make disciples. So disciples make disciples. That's interesting. That's why we talk here um, at the fellowship about being, you know, in Ephesians, Paul tells the Ephesian church that the Lord gave some to be apostles and, and, and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and pastors and teachers. And then he tells what the purpose is of giving men those gifts. He, God gives men those gifts, but the purpose is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So it's not about laying it all on the pastor-teacher. 
It's about the, the saints being equipped to do the work of the ministry. So, a disciple, here's another one, one who observes and learns and grows. Okay? Peter says, in fact, he commands at the end of one of his epistles, he commands us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then here's some promises for the disciples. That's a definition of a disciple, but here's some promises for a disciple. I mean, you can cling to these. These are promises of Jesus. Um, you might want to get one of those little, those little bread boxes that sit on the table, you know, with the cards in them, and you pull one out every morning and just look at these promises. These are the promises, some of them, for a disciple. You will be hated. It's a great promise, huh? And to cling to that. Have that with your tea and crumpets in the morning. And your buttered scones. Pull that out and look at it. You will be hated. Well, that's what Jesus said. I'm taking these from John chapter 15. John, John chapter 15, verse 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. Here's the promises. You'll be hated. Here's another one. You'll be persecuted. Oh, great. This is wonderful. You will be put out of the synagogues. Well, we don't go to synagogue, but you'll be put out of churches. And any this is this is the clincher here. Anyone who kills you will think that he does God a service. Now that those are some promises for the disciples, okay? How many still want to be a disciple? Cool. With those great promises, huh? <laughs> so as we open up the text tonight, as we as we look at this this text of Matthew chapters five through seven, let's keep in mind what it means. First of all, this is for the disciples, this is for the followers of Jesus. Now when he saw the crowds, chapter five and verse one, when he saw the crowds. He went up on a mountainside and he sat down. Now, those of you that are going to Israel with us in May, and by the way, we do have a few open seats on the plane yet. If anybody's interested, come see me. You'll note that there there aren't really mountains. I guess I wouldn't really call them mountains in Israel. It's it's uh, it's kind of like yeah, big hills. It's it, it's kind of like we call um, what's the up in Wausau here. Rib Mountain. Rib Mountain's not really a mountain, is it? It's more like a hill. It's a, it's a molehill. <laughs> okay, well, that's kind of what it... I mean, but it's still, it's still quite a cool elevation. I mean, it's, it, it's up there. The, the highest mountain that you'll see, or the highest peak, if you will, in Israel is um, Mount Tabor. And, um, and I think it's about 1,800 feet. So it's not... They're, they're not like mountains, but I want you to get the picture here because... When it says he went up on a mountainside, probably more accurately, he went up on a hillside. He sat down, and it, it's so cool to do this, to sit down on the hillsides, because where you have a hillside and then you have a little valley, it kind of forms this natural amphitheater. And you'll see that when the, when the uh, people get up to teach, you don't need a PA system. You, don't need, you, just, you just talk, and you know anybody standing around can hear you. And especially when you get down by Galilee, and the Galilee region, you get down by the lake, and you can just, just goes on and on. But he went to, up on a mountain and he sat down. And, and by the way, that's what the teachers did. The teachers sat and, um, and the students stood. Um, I don't know how that ever got turned around, but usually now in the, in, in the churches, you know, the pastor stands up behind the pulpit and the people sit. But it used to be the other way around. The teacher would sit down and those listening would stand. I guess you for sure would know if anybody fell asleep, wouldn't you? And they would just tip over. It says, uh, his disciples came to him. Now, understand again, these next, chapter 5, 6, and 7 are for the disciples. And I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on these first couple verses. And then we're going to read through these chapters because we're going to look at the teachings. But understand this. It starts out with these beatitudes, they're called. We, we call them beatitudes. Um, and you might think of it in terms of Attitude 
is more important to the Lord than actions. Does that surprise you? I'll tell you why. Because God looks at the heart. You can do anything. But notice these aren't called the do attitudes. <laughs> okay? These are the be attitudes. And, and what's so important about this is that God looks at the heart. In other words, you can do something totally wrong and still get credit for it from the Lord because your motives are right. I, I don't understand that. But you can be totally wrong. And because your motives are right, God honors it. On the other hand, you can do something totally right with the wrong motives. And the Lord says, hey, so what? Just another Pharisee. Just another scribe. Hmm. That, that's a tough one. But I think it's important for us to understand that these are not just physical laws to be kept in a physical way, but these are spiritual things, and they govern the spiritual attitudes of a thing. And You'll see what I mean as I get into this. Look at the first one. It says, His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I look at that, and I go, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I'm like, doesn't that seem like a kind of a contradiction? Wouldn't you want to be rich in spirit? Doesn't it seem kind of like a contradiction in terms? Poor in spirit? Let me tell you a little bit about being poor in spirit. It's about honesty. Do you realize that every single person that met the Lord face-to-face -face in the Bible, whether Old Testament or New Testament, when they met the Lord, they realized that they were in serious trouble. You understand? Let me give you an example. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is called by God. And what does Isaiah do? He, he says, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. That's how he responded. So an angel took a coal from the altar and touched his lips and cleansed him. How about Paul? Remember, what was he doing? He's persecuting Christians. Just what Jesus said was going to happen. Jesus said, if you're, you want to be my disciple, I'm going to tell you something. People are going to think that when they kill you, they're doing me a favor. Well, that's what Paul was doing. Paul was going around, actually Saul of Tarsus, was going around killing Christians and serving papers on them, having them bound and put in jail. He held people's coats while they stoned Stephen. Here, let me hold your coat so you can get a better throw. And I think one of the things that, that really, I don't have evidence, scriptural evidence of this, but I think one of the things that must have torn uh, Saul's heart right open is while Stephen is being stoned, he cries out to God and says, Forgive him, Lord. Don't hold this to his account. Don't hold this to their account. And he died seeing him. Remember his response? What was his response? He fell to the ground. He fell to the ground. And though he was struck blind and he couldn't see, he, he, was, he was saying, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? How about Peter? Remember Peter's response in the boat? I think it was Luke's gospel, where uh, all of a sudden the, he, Jesus says, well, throw, you know, throw your nets out on the other side of the boat. So they throw their nets out on the other side of the boat. First of all, Peter says, but Lord, we've been out all night long and we haven't caught a thing. He says, set out into the deep. Throw out your nets. Okay, if you say so, throw those nets. And there's so many fish in these nets that the nets are breaking. They can hardly get them to shore. And Peter says, depart from me, Lord. Like John in the first chapter of the Revelation. When he falls at Jesus' feet as though dead. And the Lord touches him and says, stand up, get on your feet. I mean, it's amazing. That, that's what you need to think of, the humility. Blessed are the humble. This, this verse of Scripture that says, blessed are the poor in spirit, you need to understand this is in contrast 
to somebody who is spiritually proud or, or self-sufficient, like the scribes and the Pharisees were. Self-sufficient. See, the kingdom of God is not earned. That's important. We need to understand that. It's not earned. It's a gift. It's a gift. So blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that word, um, that word blessed really means a, a, a fullness of joy, a fullness of peace and joy. And in order to understand um, not only to set us free, but to fill us with his spirit. He says, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. I don't give you a peace like the world gives. A peace that the wor- Look at the peace that the world has. You know what peace means to somebody in this world? It means the absence of conflict. If there's no war going on, hey, peace. You know, that's, that's the extent. That's not what the Lord is talking about. This, this joy within, this deep joy. So these declarations of blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice this isn't worldly wealth he's talking about here. The poor in spirit is to acknowledge that I'm sinful and I'm rebellious and I'm without merit. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. No assets. Spiritually bankrupt. I'm a spiritual beggar. If you don't understand that you're spiritually bankrupt without Jesus you won't even know your need for a Savior. It's brought about by the drawing of the Holy Spirit too, by the way. So understand that following these commands, you can't fulfill these things by yourself in your own strength. But only a beggar's total reliance on the Messiah, okay? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you understand that mourning is really the, the godly reaction to recognizing your spiritual poverty? Once, <laughs> once you recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt and you cry out to the Lord, that's what, the, that's what he's talking about here. We'll come right back, so keep your finger in Matthew here. I want you to turn over. This is the one time tonight we're going to jump out of here to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. There's a reason why I'm spending so much time on these first few verses, and then we're going to read through this. But I want you to see something. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted in Paul writes to the Corinthian church in his second letter to Corinth. He says, chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, we are comforted it is for your comfort which produces in you a patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer and our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings you also oh so also you share in our comfort now let me just make that real simple you're going through um, this horrendous time in your life And God brings about this comfort. The Bible says that God comforts you with that comfort so that you, in turn, can comfort others with that same comfort. And I've seen that happen over and over and over and over. When someone is broken and God comforts them, then all of a sudden they look around and, oh, here's somebody going through the same type of thing that I'm going through, same type of thing, and now I can comfort them. So blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I love the way Chuck Smith puts this one. He takes that word meek, and he puts a hyphen in between it. And he says this, me, ek. (laughs) You know, think about it. Me, ek. Meek, 
Blessed are the meek. That's a good way to remember it too because the meek, they're not looking to satisfy themselves. And he's talking to his disciples here. Blessed are the meek. A meek person tends to put other people... Don't, don't mistake meek for weak. It's not the same word. Meekness and weakness are two totally different things. I look at Jesus and I see meekness. I don't see weakness. I see meekness. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit this a week ago. In John chapter 7, Jesus said, Any who thirst, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. From your inmost being will flow rivers of living water. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The merciful will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, this is when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, the Bible here is not talking about the blood pump, okay? It's not talking about those who don't have clogged arteries, okay? When it says, blessed are the pure in heart, that the, the heart that they're speaking about is the seat of the mind, the will, the emotions, okay? Blessed are the pure in heart. That's the very center of your being, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Anybody ever had somebody do that to them? Anybody had a, ever had somebody say something falsely about you and you know those nasty rumors that go around? Praise the Lord that they were false, right? Could be worse. They could be saying true things about you. That's... That's a point of rejoicing. Blessed are you when people insult you. Sounds like a paradox, but really not. Verse 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Interesting that if you desire, Paul writes this to Timothy, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. There's going to be people that hate you. Why? Because they hated Jesus. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. They used to take uh, the salt that wasn't any good for seasoning anymore and they would throw it out on the paths because it would keep the weeds down and the walking paths and stuff and it would keep it to a place where you could walk on it. You know, it wasn't any good for seasoning anymore. But you know what? I think that in many respects, the Christian church has lost their saltiness. How much influence really do we have on the world right now? And why? It's an interesting study. How can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. Remember, he's talking to the disciples here, salt of the earth, light of the world. What's... What's the deal with salt? Well, of Revelation, it's a preservative. You see how quickly things rot when the church is pulled out of here in Revelation. I mean, it goes downhill really fast. Also, salt creates thirst. Did you ever think of that? When people look at us, they ought to get thirsty. I'm talking about that kind of thirst that they thirst for righteousness, that they thirst for Christ because they're looking at us, and that's what Jesus, don't lose your saltiness. Now he says you're the light of the world. What does light do? Well, it does away with the darkness. You bring things in, you shine a light on something, darkness has to flee. You ever notice when we come in here in the evening and everything's dark in here and, and uh, you just walk over by the bank, a light switch is there, and you start flipping light on, what happens to the darkness? It just takes off. It doesn't have a choice. And I think that many Christians are, are spending so much time. I mean, I don't walk in the room when it's dark in here and, and, and pull out my Bible and start slashing at the air and going, darkness, flee, you know. I turn on the light. And that's what happens when we get into God's Word and the Lord begins to shine light on His Word and our hearts. And all of a sudden we look at the two and pretty soon we realize we're bankrupt. Lord, I don't line up. I don't match up. Now what am I going to do? And you have a choice. You cry out to the Lord, and he fills you up. 
The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember? You're the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, no, take note of this, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise says that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven god won't have people touching his glory you ever notice that in the scriptures there were guys that came and they said well we know how you're a, you're supposed to approach god in worship but we're just going to do whatever we please i think we're going to approach god like this well <laughs> they ended up you know a little grease spot on a rug and even in the Holy of Holies, the high priest, when the high priest would walk behind into the Holy of Holies, you read about that. It's an interesting gig. They got on the, on the bottom of the hem of their garment, they had bells sewn on. And they had a rope around their ankle. And when the high priest was in there doing his duties, if, if the bell stopped ringing, they didn't walk in there and get them. If he did something that wasn't, wasn't prescribed, a way to approach the Lord, and he died right on the spot, they didn't go in and get him. They pulled him out by the rope. Yeah, that's how, that's how important it was that you approach God. God won't have people touching his glory. You're not going to touch the glory. Think about that as we started this gospel with you know, Zechariah. And, and Luke's gospel there, and he was the one who was going in and lighting the incense and and performing his duties in the temple. You know. How'd you like to be the next guy in line after they pull the guy out with the rope? Hey, Murray, you're up. You, know, ah. you don't approach God like that, and you don't touch the glory. When people start giving you the glory, you need to turn it around. And you say, wait a minute. <laughs> the angel in Revelation, when John began to worship the angel, and the angel said, get up from there. I'm a fellow servant. Don't worship me. Look at verse 17. Do you think, or do not think, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now this is where Jesus starts getting into his mission. Jesus' mission was to fulfill everything that was written about him in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. And he, and he mentions that in Luke's gospel. Chapter 24, he mentions... Um, let's just turn there for a second. I've got to find that. I think it's in. I don't want to misspeak here. Yep, here we go. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Luke 24, 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And then verse 45 says, And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. Is that amazing? Jesus said, Listen, I'm not coming to do away with the law. I'm coming to fulfill the law. Now you need to keep that in mind as we go through the law today because we're going to go through the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of laws. In fact, Jesus draws the lines way back from where the teachers of his day were drawing the lines. He says, I've come to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You see, Jesus, Jesus is not interested in his, in his own, or in any other man's agenda. His only purpose is to do the will of the Father in heaven. That's his only will. Watch this. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now you're going, wait a minute. If he breaks the commandments, he's called least in the kingdom. If he keeps the commandments and teaches them, he's called greatest in the kingdom. What's the matter? They, what, everybody goes to heaven? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is whether you keep all these or break all these is not the issue. It's not the issue. Because you can't get to heaven by keeping a set of commandments. 
and he's going to prove it to you. It might be a shock to you, but 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 this is this is reality. In fact, I I pity those that that are attempting to get to heaven by keeping some set of laws, whether it's the Ten Commandments, whether it's the Mishnah. I pulled the Mishnah out the other day at youth group. That's the laws that the the, the, the uh, rabbis came up with and added to the laws that I mean. Like there's whole chapters devoted to the Sabbath law, for example. Here's the Sabbath law. And I get chapters devoted to the, this mission. It's like this thick. Eric started talking to the Hesed about the Mishnah. So I went in my office and got a copy of it. I brought it out here. I said, here, you want to start? Just open up anywhere and start reading. Sabbath law. You couldn't spit on the Sabbath, according to the Mishnah. Because if you spit on the ground and your spit made a furrow in the dirt, that's plowing. It's true, it's plowing. You can't plow on the Sabbath. You're guilty of sin. You see what I mean? It's not about that. Listen carefully. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses as that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That must have freaked these people out. Because the scribes and the Pharisees lived the law. They lived it. They, they, they ate it. They spoke it. They drank it. They lived it. And he said, Jesus says, you need to surpass it. Now, here he goes. Fasten your seatbelts. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, I'm just going to explain when he says, you have heard, you've heard it said. You need to understand that Hebrew was only for the scholars. The common person in Jesus' day didn't know Hebrew. And so, you know, after coming back from the Babylonian captivity, they spoke Chaldean. Aramaic was the language of the day. But all this was in... So he couldn't say, well, you've read... You know, he said, you've heard it said. And most of the other... Like the rabbis would quote each other. They'd get up and they'd say, you know, Rabbi Hallel says such and such, and Rabbi Shimei says so-and-so, and everybody goes, ooh, ooh. Jesus says, listen to the authority he says this, well, you heard it said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Reka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now that's interesting. That word reka there, um, it's an Aramaic word and it's a term of, of contempt. But he's talking about being angry with your brother. If you're angry with your brother, you've already murdered him. Verse 23, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out till you've paid the last penny. You've heard it said. Do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. What's Jesus doing here? He's taking the law and he's saying, you think you can keep this law? Let me up the ante a little bit. Let me tell you what this is really about. He wants every one of his disciples to be broken in spirit and to realize, I'm poor in spirit. Lord, I need you. I need a Messiah. Where's this Messiah everybody's talking about? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Why the right hand? Why the right eye? Well, most people, this is not to offend you lefties, southpaws, most people, the majority of people are right-handed and right-eye dominant. 
And so it was considered your better hand, your better eye. Um, speaking to the majority here. Now, I once heard a pastor say, see, you can't take the Bible literally. But he only took part of the passage. He said, Jesus said, if, you, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it from you. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And that's where he stopped. He didn't read the rest of the passage. The rest of the passage said, for it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Can you take that literally? You better. You better. Jesus is not telling you to pluck your eye out or cut your hand off. He's telling you that sin brings judgment. And that's the truth. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. That's pretty clear. There's th th that's pretty clear. Jesus sets the standard. And he raises it. Now, does that mean that we go after divorced people? If we go after divorced people, let me just tell you, we need to go after everybody that's angry at his brother. And we need to go... You understand? Jesus is not setting these things to, to, to make the hurdles higher to jump over. He's, setting, he's telling you that you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. He's sitting down with his disciples and saying, don't you understand? You're not going to make it. <laughs> you know? You're not going to make it. This is a kind of a, a heavy message that's going on here. Again, you've heard it said it was that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oath you've made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by earth, for it's God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Did you catch that? Do you ever notice the people who always have to go, no, no, honest, honest. The people that have to go, I swear, I swear. Those are the people you can never trust, right? Because a person who is just honest all the time and his yes is yes and his no is no, he doesn't have to say those things. He just says it and people believe him. When you have a history you know, that's following you, then you have to say, no, really, truly, honest. Wow. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right, right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile with him, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. That's pretty hard. These are pretty harsh teachings. How do you do that? How do you do that? Somebody comes up and smacks you one. Quite frankly, I don't know how you do that. Jesus says do it. You've heard it said. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. I'll tell you what, that, that really works. I've seen that work. Where somebody is persecuting you and instead of getting mad and yelling back or getting into an argument with them or whatever, just begin to pray for them. Watch what happens. My kids have done that at school. You're getting picked on, picked on, picked on. They start praying for the kid. All of a sudden, he shows up at youth group one night. You ever seen a bully get saved? It's really cool. God can change a heart. I, you know, I was a scrapper when I was in school. I was, I was always getting in fights. I was going around, and I'd punch people right in the fist with my eye. I'd punch people in the fist with my stomach. I was getting beat up all the time. But, you know, when I became a Christian, I found out I'm in a different kind of fight now. I'm in a different kind of war. I'm in a war. I was born into a family that was at war, not, not by choice. I don't want to be in this war. I am. 
He says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wait a minute. Perfect? Lord, you want me to be perfect, Lord? I thought that was a misprint. Looked it up in the Greek. You know what it means? Be perfect. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Ooh. Ooh, how many do that? How many do that? I like to, you know, I want people to see me see me doing that. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. If you look around this place, you'll see um just a just a labor of love. I mean, this this was put up by the people who fellowship here. Uh, you see the labor of love. And, and uh, you know, we've been in this building. We'll be starting our eighth year in this building on, in January, first Sunday in January. We'll be starting eight years. And you look around, and of all the things that have been donated and all the things that have been given, just given from the heart, you don't find any plaques. You don't find little gold tags on everything. Because that's your reward. That's your reward. Wow. But when you give to the needy, he says, let me back up just a little. They, um, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the street to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That's the way to go. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen of men. I tell you the truth. They've received their reward in full. But when you pray, remember, who is he speaking to? Disciples. When you pray, disciples, go into your room, close. do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Any questions on prayer? It's getting cleared up right here. Right here, it's getting cleared up. You know, I think the Lord would rather just hear us say, you know, I love you, Lord, and mean it, than to go on for, you know, 20 minutes and then, oh, thou most omnipotent, you know. And it's like, Lord's going, get off it. I mean, think about it. I know when my kids are coming to butter me up, you don't think God knows? He knows. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we all the evil one. I could spend one week on each one of those verses and do a study on each one of those verses. I'm asking you to meditate on that prayer and understand that this is a prayer of submission. This is a prayer where you check out, your will checks out, God's will checks in. You know, God, whatever you want. And then Jesus decides to expound a little bit on one line of the prayer. He says, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Wow. I guess that means that we're supposed to forgive people. Hmm. When you fast, when you fast, do not look somber like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. Jesus was telling, and I don't mean to be picking on these guys, but we were, we were on the Temple Mount one night and we were watching some of the Orthodox go down to the Wailing Wall and, and celebrate Shabbat. And each one had a way, the way they walked, and each one had you know, certain traditions, you know, roll your pants legs up just so, and they had the phylacteries you know, tied on their, on their heads and their wrists. And, 
And it's interesting to see Jesus is talking about these guys who are doing this stuff for show. They're going to fast and so, oh, wear a long face and, oh, man, I'm fasting, you know. I wasn't going to tell you guys tonight, but I'm fasting and, you know, I've been fasting for a long time now, you guys, for you. And uh, you see how that comes off? That's sick. But when you fast, put on, put put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will rust, destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Hey, great point to take an inventory here. We need to take an inventory in our own lives and say, Lord, really, what's my treasure? Where do you? Sp- I'll tell you what, you want to know where your treasure is? All you have to do is look in your checkbook, look at your credit card receipts, and you'll know where your treasure is. That's just between you and the Lord. But just look at, I mean, look at your life. What do you spend all your time on? What do you spend on, you know? Jesus says where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. You know, Jesus wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. Then he says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole that darkness. Wow. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Wow. So what's going on? This is, a, this is an internal inventory. This is looking at the inside. Jesus is looking at the inside and talking about treasures. You can't serve both. You can only serve one master. Who's it going to be? Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add one to hire people to worry for them? You just pay somebody here. This is what I want to worry about. You worry about it. <laughs> I don't have to get old over it and gray hair and, you know. I don't have to get ulcers and stuff. I just pay you and you worry. But he says, why do you worry? Why do you worry? And so many of us, now he's talking to his disciples. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what He sends these guys out later on and he says, don't even take an extra tunic. Don't even, just, you know, your staff pair of sandals. You can't add a single hour to your life. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. But that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothes shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's a, that's a key verse, you guys. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow, has, tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, this is one that people like to fling around, especially, I mean, every drunk in the tavern knows this verse. So don't judge, lest you be ju- ju- judged. Everybody sitting on their bar stool knows this, but that's not what it's saying. I'll prove it to you as we get through this chapter. If you use, it will be measured to you. Now, first of all, let me just give you a clue. He's talking about judging another person's salvation. He's talking about judging another person's heart. You can't look at a man's heart. Only God can look at a man's heart. You can judge the fruit of that man. You can judge his deeds. You can't judge that man. And that's what the Lord is saying. And I'll prove it to you. Because over in verse 15, he says, you better be judging. (laughs) You better judge. 
don't let anybody pull this out of context and use it on you. Why, as a matter of fact, in uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, in First Corinthians, chapter two, right at the end of the chapter, Paul says, "The spiritual man judges all things." Notice it doesn't he's not judging people; he's not judging people's salvation, but he judges all things. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay? You ever have somebody come at you and they got this big log sticking out of their eye and they're here? Let me help you with that sliver. <laughs> they turn around and you got a duck, you know, it's a big thing, you know. That's the picture. That's the picture. You got a plank sticking out of your own eye. How can you say to your brother, "Let me take the speck out of your eye" when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Jesus even uses humor. That's a funny sight there, but he's saying, "You hypocrite." That's not funny. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be open. Which of you if his son asks for bread will then? Though you are evil. Well, I don't know if I like that. The Lord calling me evil. No. Worldly. Evil. You know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him. This is a reference, by the way, to the gifts of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. How, how, you know, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. You ever had somebody tell you, well, you know, I just think there's many, many roads and they all lead to the same place. Ever heard that one? You can tell them, well, that's true. But praise God, it's one wide one. Many find it. But it leads to destruction. I'm not going there. Small is the gate. Narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. Now, here's why I said in the beginning of this chapter 7, he says, don't judge. Listen, he's not talking about judging false teaching and judging false prophets and judging. Listen to what he says. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Everyone that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Hmm. Now you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles, and then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And then he sums it up with this story of the wise and foolish builders. Listen carefully. Therefore, everyone who, who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Hmm. See, the wise men of Jesus' day didn't teach with authority because they didn't know. They really didn't know. They were just saying some words that came from somebody else. Jesus says, and notice the promise in here between the wise and foolish builder. The promise was there's a storm coming. And it's going to crack, it's going to beat on that house. It says the rain came down, the, the streams rose, the wind beat against that house. One of them stood, one of them fell. And I'm convinced 
that if our house is going to stand, we need to be wise builders. We need to hear this word tonight. We need to hear what Jesus is saying. We need to take it to heart. We need to understand that we are spiritually bankrupt. And I want you to know a desperate realization that I am unworthy. I am a sinner. And I'm totally in your hands, Lord. That's what these three chapters, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, that's what that says to me. If we're called to be his disciples, we need to understand you can't work your way to heaven. We have to depend totally on the completed work of Jesus Christ.